Good evening, everybody. Good to see you here tonight. Won't you open your Bibles up to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6? Parker was telling Lottie Moon stories, and Brandon mentioned Lottie Moon. You know, if you ever make it up to Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, and you got some time to kill, they've got a museum of Lottie Moon's artifacts. You can see things that uh, made it back on a boat, I guess, at some point from, um, from her ministry there in China. Lottie Moon never understood why she was born, you know, just with darker hair than the rest of her sisters, and she didn't grow to be as tall as the rest of them. And when she went to serve overseas, she found that she fit in a lot better than a lot of the other Americans that were over there and knew that God had a plan all along. Uh, her story is really incredible. But we're looking tonight at Luke chapter 6. We're continuing through uh, what's sometimes called the Sermon on the Plain. It may be the Sermon on the Mount is the same deal that he, you know, Jesus coming down to a sort of plateaued area there on the mountain speaking. It's some distinction or some, some discussion about whether this is the same, whether it's a similar sermon, and you can have that argument with somebody else. We won't go into that tonight, but uh, I'd like to look at, continue looking at Jesus's words. Before we do so, a uh, vital piece of information for you. When I was in kindergarten, my favorite show was Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Anybody, you know, get excited about Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood when you were growing up? Mr. Rogers, if I remember correctly, is actually a Vietnam veteran. Uh, I had heard at one time, and so uh, he also went to seminary to be trained as a, as a pastor. You can sort of see that in kind of his gentleness, I guess, in, in, in ways. But he gives a really good uh, illustration that I thought really cued into tonight really well. Uh, Fred Rogers, writing in one of his memoirs, says this, Years ago, my wife and I were worshiping in a little church with friends of ours. We were on vacation, and I was in the middle of my homiletics course at the time. Homiletics is training preachers how to preach. During the sermon, I kept ticking off every mistake I thought the preacher, he must have been 80 years old, was making. When this interminable sermon finally ended, I turned to one of my friends intending to say something critical about the sermon. I stopped myself when I saw the tears running down her face. She whispered to me, he said exactly what I needed to hear. That was really a seminal experience for me. I was judging and she was needing. And the Holy Spirit responded to need, not judgment. Amen. Can we pray tonight together as we dive into the Word of God? Father, we ask that you would bring our hearts to a place of need, a need for the Holy Spirit's power, a need for the words of Jesus to break away the, the icy shell that sometimes gathers around our hearts. And so, Father, tonight would you speak clearly as only you can uh, the wonderful words of life of Jesus Christ. Father, may we hear, be challenged, be encouraged, and move forward in your grace and your truth. We thank you, Lord, in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son. Amen. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, we're going to begin with verse 37. Beginning with verse 37 in Luke chapter 6, as you're kind of turning your eye uh, to that point, I want to go ahead and mention there's going to be several pivot points this uh, October as we're going to be doing some things on Wednesday night. The old magician slogan is always leave them wanting more. And when you're going through a book that's as long as the gospel of Luke, I think it's helpful to take breaks and to come back in at times. Uh, Pastor Brandon's actually going to be leading uh, a small group himself on parenting. And I know several have signed up for that already. Uh, there is still a little bit of space left. If you 
you'd like to take part in that, if you're a parent uh, in here, it's going to be a really great study that he's going to be beginning in October. As well as that, I'm going to be um, pivoting as well. And then for the month of October in here, uh, we're going to study a series I'm calling Trauma, Trouble, and Triumph, uh, the story of Joseph a prescription for dealing with deep pain. And so Joseph in the book of Genesis and all of the things that he went through, and not only is it marvelous that he stayed true to the Lord under normal circumstances, but he did so under such pain uh, and such difficulty. So for the month of October, we're going to take part in that way. And whether you're involved in the parent study, whether you're involved in here on Wednesday night, we're going to have both of them recorded. And so you can take place, uh, take part in both of them, or depending on whatever room you're in, you can know you've got access to get to both. And so sometimes choices in a church can be tough. I hope you feel like it's a tough choice so you can have both of them if you like. Uh, Well, let's dive in together. Luke chapter six, we're gonna begin with verse 37. Jesus still speaking says, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable, can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he's fully trained will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that's in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. I've got handouts up here tonight. I've also got a few extra uh, mission prayer cards for our missionaries. So if you didn't get a chance to get one uh, Sunday, I know... uh, uh, as, as Brandon mentioned just a moment, for Hunter, uh, a moment ago for Hunter and Deidre, we've got some up here at the end. You're welcome uh, to, uh, to grab some. I've enjoyed getting to meet them, and I know uh, come from a great family, the Curleys, and um, mission experience as children, and now mission experience uh, as adults. And so I know you'll want to support them and pray for them. I've got your handout sheet here tonight. You've got a few fill-in-the-blanks. If you got some energy to fill in a few blanks tonight, regardless, here we go, right? Number one, I want to go ahead and say this, judgment and condemnation in this context when Jesus is speaking are when we find fault with others in order to elevate ourselves or when we pronounce sentence on others in any way. In various places in Israel and in Judah, there would have been this area, which is a little tough to see, but this area of one of these archaeological digs used to be what was called a judgment seat years ago. And so instead of being behind a large wooden desk, uh, like maybe, you know, the people's court or something like that, uh, you've got a judgment seat that someone would sit on to pronounce judgment. Uh, Whoever was the the magistrate or the judge of that area or the ruler of that area uh, to pronounce sentence. We see that even with Pontius Pilate and the Lord Jesus uh, later in the Gospels, the judgment seat that was there. Uh, in in Jerusalem. And so you've got this kind of sense as Jesus speaks into this text, uh, you might remember Matthew, uh, I believe it's Matthew 7 where this is given to say, judge not lest ye be judged. That's what's most familiar. Jesus saying something very similar here in this context, judge not and you will not be judged, condemn not and you will not be condemned. That is the secular person's favorite verse in the Bible, isn't it? 
Is there not an incredible misunderstanding of this verse in terms of the context to say, judge not so that you won't be judged? That to some people feels like a green light to do anything that we could ever want, right? Well, you can't, you can't possibly say anything against me because you, you shouldn't be judging. Jesus said not to do that. It's important that we have an understanding of what Jesus is and isn't saying here tonight. Jesus is not saying to not have discernment over what is right and wrong. He's not saying to not have principles. He is not saying to not take, take a stand for things that are right. Uh, and, and so in that way, we're called to have convictions and we're called uh, to follow the Lord. And we don't need to be, uh, you know, somehow shy about that. Uh, we don't need to be people that are so bold that we're just running everybody over with what we feel and how we think. Uh, but we need to be people who are, who are willing to stand on convictions. Jesus is not speaking about that. Judgment and condemnation in this context are when we find fault with others in order to elevate ourselves or when we pronounce sentence on others in any way. Judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Judging for a Christian is right when we are having the conviction, having the discernment to choose between right and wrong, it is wrong when we are putting ourselves in the seat of the Lord Jesus in someone else's life. It's wrong when all of a sudden we're focused in such a way that what we think we can do is pronounce sentence on somebody else. Now, judging is a word that we use more frequently than I think uh, condemnation. When we think about condemning, we almost always think of it in a negative uh, connotation, or rightly that we should. It's a negative word. And so a judge, being able to judge and hear and discern, it, there's even another step past judging to condemning, right? You know what condemning is? Pronouncing sentence on someone. That's the point where the decision has been rendered and there's no going back and you are condemning that person to prison, condemning that person to death. That This is the, the authority that a judge has to pronounce sentence and to say this is what's going to happen to somebody. And Jesus says that for us, we are not to be people who pronounce sentence on somebody else. You know what? I'm really thankful that it's not up to me or to you to pronounce sentence on someone else spiritually. Aren't you glad that that's up to Jesus? We're called to follow the Lord, to be voices of truth and grace and to balance that. We're not called to be those who condemn. Because in reality, those who condemn are those who are, in essence, pronouncing such a sentence so that we're the middleman between them and Christ. We've gotten in the way of that conversation and that interaction. And there are people in our world who, because they've been condemned by those who claim to follow Christ, have never known the risen Christ. Because somebody else has stood in the way condemning them for what Jesus' grace uh, would have moved in their life in such a way. And so do not judge and do not condemn. And at the same time, we see this great point that this is a reflection of how the Lord is even going to treat us. Judge not and you will not be judged. Now that doesn't mean if you just don't care about anything, God's not going to care about anything as it relates to you. What it is saying is the more merciful you are, the more moved to mercy God himself is going to be. I don't know about you, but I need that. Amen. I need the mercy of God. Condemn not, because when you are not a person of condemnation, that God is going to recognize in your mercy that he is prone to be merciful to you as well. And so there's a, there's a benefit for us not uh, being like that. And I have kind of a sub point. This is a sneaky thing preachers do. They sneak in sub points and it doesn't count towards the number, but uh, it's still in there nonetheless. But sort of underneath that, I've got a point A and it's this, and I think this is really important for us. Like never 
before. The church needs to be a place where prodigals can come home. Like never, ever before, the church needs to be a place where prodigals can come home. We live in a world now that is farther gone in terms of generational lostness than has ever existed in our country. We live in communities and neighborhoods and and housing developments where the people who you know know less about the Bible, less about what it means to follow the Lord. And the more resistant we are to the fact that in their lost condition they know nothing about what it means to follow Jesus, the more we are resistant and put up walls to that, the more we get in the way of prodigals coming home the more we impact how those who are lost cannot find the hope of the Savior. You know, I think it's a tragic thing that in probably on average, I would say for most lost people, if you ask them to say, what kind of places might you feel the most condemned, the church would probably be pretty high on their list. And they probably would understand enough to know, well, there's different viewpoints I have politically, there's different viewpoints I have morally or ethically that somehow would combat what Christians believe. And there might be some amount of that that we have to be people who stand on convictions and and that's understandable. But, you know, we also need to be people who say, you know what, I was a beggar who also needed to find food and it was all about the Lord Jesus. And the best I can do is tell you where to find it because he's the source of all that's good. That we're not called to be people who just say, well, I I sure am great. Let me take you to this place so someday you can be just like me. That's not the gospel. Aren't you glad? And we have to be a place. If we're going to see the lost reached, there's got to be a place where they can come home, where they're not judged and they're not condemned. They're loved. They're taught. the, The grace and truth of Jesus Christ are balanced and spoken into their life. But love is what shines forth in that in a powerful way. I love the old hymn that we sometimes sing for an invitation. You've heard it before. Come home, come home. Ye who are weary, come home. Then it says this great phrase. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling. You know, I want to be like Jesus. And if the world is going to hear something from me and characterize what my stance is towards them, I hope that a couple words that can be used is he sure is earnest and he sure is tender. Earnestly, tenderly, Jesus is calling. I think if Jesus is going to call that way, and we can too. Number two, if we desire the mercy, forgiveness, and blessing of the Lord, we need to be merciful forgiving and blessing uh, and a blessing to others a blessing to others if we desire the mercy forgiveness and blessing of the lord we need to be merciful forgiving and blessing to others and or and a blessing to others uh Brandon mentioned something about the Southern Baptist Convention just a little bit earlier. I actually have an illustration tonight from an annual meeting back in the 1980s. How many of y'all been Southern Baptist for a long time? How many of y'all reach back all the way to the 1980s? Okay. Hallelujah. I see those hands. All right. You can put them down. In the 1980s, Southern Baptists were fighting for whether or not we were going to hold on to the Bible or not. 
among churches in our country and, and all around the world to some extent at that point, we were deciding, did we really believe that the Bible was the inspired Word of God? Did we really believe that as God gave that message through the Holy Spirit to those who wrote it down, that it was inerrant, that it was inspired, that it was infallible, that it was sufficient? Did we really believe that? And the annual meetings where Baptists came together got to be really large and really contentious. So much so that if you were involved in Southern Baptist life, whether you were a pastor, a messenger, going to these meetings, it was something you almost avoided. In recent years, we've kind of gotten back to some of those, you know, heading in that direction where you just say, oh, no, I don't know if I'm up for the annual meeting this year. I don't care if it is in Orlando. I'm not sure I'm really willing to go. Contentious and tough. In 1988, Southern Baptists met in San Antonio, and it was right at the heat of all this kind of stuff. And there was a pastor named Joel Gregory at the time who gave a sermon called The Castle and the Wall, and it became one of the most well-remembered sermons in Southern Baptist annual meeting history, I guess you could say. And it was all about trying to bridge this gap between people who were figuring out different labels to give themselves. They were in this camp or that camp, or they were these people or those people. And he started to say something that, that was really powerful in the midst of numerous things he said. You can still find this you know, sermon on YouTube. If you have trouble sleeping, you can pull it up. If, you're, if you've gone through all mine, you can listen to old Southern Baptist you know, annual meeting sermons and, and you know, fall asleep real easy. But Joel Gregory gave a powerful message about what it meant to, to work together and to not choose uh, dissension and malice and those kind of things. But he said, you know, in, the, in between these camps of people who at times were calling themselves liberals and conservatives or moderates and otherwise, and, and you've got all this kind of, you know, label pushing. And he said, you know, one of the things I've heard is in the speaking back and forth between people as different names are brought up and people nominated for certain things, there'll be those who say, yeah, yeah, I know that name, but i tell you one thing, I have a long memory. And Joel Gregory uh, turned to the parallel passage for this passage where Jesus in Matthew 6 says that if we forgive our brothers and sisters that God in heaven will forgive us. And if we don't forgive our brothers and sisters, God's forgiveness will not be given to us. And he said, you know what, Southern Baptists, are, we've got some avoided preaching, sometimes it's that. And he said, I tell you what, one of these days bef- bef- when you stand before the Lord and you're, you're there found before him, the very last thing you want to hear him say in eternity is, I have a long memory. <laughs> yeah. You'd say, oh Lord, what about Psalm 103 with the east and the west? What about, you know, burying our sins in the heart of the sea like it says in the book of Micah? The last thing you want to hear from the Lord is, I have a long memory. And so we as people can't be people who are defined in Christ by saying, well, you know what? I got a long memory. And I remember what this person did and what that person did. And I remember how this person, you know, and all we're doing is keeping score and we're trying to figure that out. You know, we're not called to that. And there's a balance given here between the fact that God's mercy will reflect on us in some way in the sense of how we are merciful to others. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Once again, I don't know about you, but I need to be forgiven. And I want to be forgiven. And so we need to be people who are forgiving of others. Forgiveness is not the same as restoration. It is not always the same as reconciliation. There are times in life where you have to forgive someone, but that doesn't mean that life goes back to normal. 
that there's situations, whether it's abuse, whether there's any number of circumstances where you cannot enable someone to continue doing the same things, but you can release that person to the Lord and recognize, I don't hold the condemnation voice over this person. God is the one who's going to deal with them. And so forgiveness becomes the important release whereby we say, God, I'm not holding on to some kind of authority, some kind of hatred, some kind of bitterness and malice in my heart towards another person. I'm going to let you take them. And the best I can, I'm going to love them, even if that means from a distance. Forgive, and you'll be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. My grandfather, one of my grandfathers went home to be with the Lord this year. And uh, he was 94 years old, incredible man of God. And, and just even at his funeral, I was meeting people whose life he had touched through his ministry and, and time. He was not in vocational ministry per se, but he, he did a number of things, missions and otherwise that, that really had an impact for decades. Uh, but uh, I remembered a, a scene where he had come up to college to uh, he was a, an Edward Jones uh, sort of traveling person who filled in for people who were gone and he would go all over the place. He came to Asheville where I was in college and he went to church with me one Sunday morning. And uh, my grandfather was from the, you know, the kind of churches where if you had other Bibles, you read them at home, but you brought your King James on Sunday. Y'all, y'all know what I'm talking about? So, so I wasn't in an ultra contemporary church, but I just remember that Sunday that for whatever reason, there were hand motions to go along with the song. Y'all, y'all ever sang that song? Um, Give and it will come back to you. Press down, shaking together and running over. Maybe I'm the only one who's ever sang that before. <laughs> we were singing that in church and I remember something about some hand motions that were going on and just, you know, press down, shaking together. And run. I still remembered that popped in my mind of my grandfather. Sometimes this passage is one that's thought of when we think of this good measure, pressed down, you know, shaken together, running over. We think of it as it applies to giving because that's the last thing that Jesus says and rightly we should. However, it's in the context of everything. Judging, condemning, forgiving, and giving. Then in the way in which we respond to God's call in our life, there's going to be some amount of a reciprocal way that God responds back to us in that sense. You know, I already gave one illustration from PBS, so you'll have to forgive me. Y'all remember this guy? Anybody remember him? This was the first Cajun man I ever knew. I never met him, but he was on PBS before Mr. Rogers sometimes. I never heard anybody say onion before, but uh, he was my first one. He was the one who taught me that uh, you can use certain parts of your hand to measure out tablespoons and teaspoons. If you ever watched his show, I think that was one of the tricks that he frequently did. Uh, Justin Wilson, I think was his name, something like that. But I uh, thought of him when we were thinking about this illustration for pressed down and shaken together. And, and a lot of the times when you would get grain in biblical times, what the illustration that's used here doesn't necessarily mean a jar or something. Often it was the outer garment. Any of y'all ever needed to throw something, you know, in your t-shirt and take it back? That's, that's kind of how it would work. That you'd have it poured in there. And then at some point, you know, you'd get it to where that, that grain would just sort of, you know, rise up in sort of this little grain mountain. And so what do you do with a shirt? You just... You know, just like that. <laughs> Flatten it back down and then open, you can pour some more in. That's kind of the language that's being used here. You got pressed down, shaken together. If you were to go with jars, a uh, little bit less common, but maybe something like this, that these guys, you know, would take that grain and then <laughs> they'd get that jar and then, <clears throat> you know, just trying to push down, get as much as they could. No, it's still just a gallon. I, I promise it's, you know. 
that kind of thing. And so press down, shaking together, getting all you can in that. And then the overflow, you know, this picture of that kind of just, you know, running over whatever the container is to just get all over everything, that, that there's blessing that's just over and above uh, what's, what's the container that you, you would come to, to, to try to use. And so God's forgiveness, God's giving to his children, God's mercy that when we're responding to Jesus in a way that reflects in our lives that the goodness of God coming to us, not in just minimal, tiny amounts, you know. I remember uh, Lou Holtz, the old coach of Notre Dame, football coach, he said, uh, you know, we were pretty poor growing up, uh, growing up in, uh, I think it was West Virginia, rural West Virginia. He said, but we always had plenty to eat. And I know that because every time I'd ask for seconds, my dad would say, no, you've had plenty. Yeah. <laughs> Some of y'all may have grew up that way too. You know, God has no lack of plenty to give to his children. Aren't you thankful? That, that doesn't simply mean, you know, some sort of financial prosperity. That means the goodness and the blessing of God. That we're able to sing great is thy faithfulness and not sufficient is thy faithfulness. You know, all right is thy faithfulness. I'm, I'm just think about the majesty and the wonder, the greatness of the giving of God. So we see that given in the words of Jesus here that, that in the mercy that we give, heaven will overflow in response uh, to the ways in which we honor the Lord. You ever heard anybody say you can't outgive God? That's in every area of our life. You will never be shown as much mercy as God has shown you in Christ. You will never be forgiven more than you have been forgiven, or you will never forgive others more than, than God has forgiven you in Christ. You'll never be able to give others more uh, than what Christ has given to each one of us. And so if we desire the mercy, forgiveness, and blessing of the Lord, we need to be merciful, forgiving, and blessing to others. Number three, if we're truly, truly following Jesus, we should continue to resemble his character and behavior more and more. Verse 39, he told them a parable, can a blind man lead a blind man? Of course, the answer, no, wouldn't be a good idea. Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he's fully trained will be like his teacher. If we're truly following Jesus, we should continue to resemble his character and behavior more and more. I thought it was interesting looking through some of these pictures that are, uh, you know, attached to, to Luke chapter 6. Uh, some of these pictures come from a database that's sorted biblically, and so I've found some of these to be interesting. This was a picture of a, a well in Dothan. Uh, you remember Dothan, it, I think it takes place, or there, Dothan's included twice in the Old Testament. Once when Joseph is sold into slavery, and once when Elisha's servant looks out on the hillsides and sees chariots of fire, that great, great passage, uh, that those who are with us are greater than those who are against us. Um, but, but in Dothan, there is this pit, and I just, um, you know, I was kind of taken aback. Imagine walking through this field at dusk, and, you know, there's no fence, there's no rail, there's nothing. Uh, here's another pit that is located uh, at a place called Lachlan in that area. This is about 30 to 40 feet deep, this pit. It's out in the middle of a field. It's been there for hundreds of years. It's only gotten a fence in recent years. And so we sort of live in an area where, by and large, if you've got a swimming pool, you can't have a swimming pool without a fence. You, you, we're sort of protected, aren't we? You know, that, that's why when you take out your car manual, it tells you not to drink the battery acid and all this kind of ridiculous stuff. You know, we live in a day and age where people think we can't do anything on our own. 
But, uh, but ancient Israel, you know, you could, you could, if you weren't paying attention walking through a field, you could be in a 40-foot hole in no time. And so a blind man leading a blind man could really, you know, find some danger really quickly. And so Jesus says that if you're going to follow someone, you'd better make sure that they know the way and that they know what they're doing or it can be a huge pitfall. There's a great amount of people who are following after the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Herodians and others in Jesus' time. And they're just simply being led down a dark road that's going to lead nowhere. A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone when he's fully trained will be like his teacher. That the more you and I walk in following Jesus, we should look more and more like Jesus. Did you know that? Now, I don't mean we get a better beard or, you know, that kind. I mean, we should resemble his character, his behavior, that we should reflect that to the rest of the world. Mahatma Gandhi, who was a famous uh, reformer, civil rights leader in India, many of you familiar with his name, uh, was asked one time why he was not uh, interested in Christianity. He'd grown up in a British uh, consulate, I guess, there, part of the empire, and so was exposed to Christianity. And he made this statement. He said, I like your Christ, but not so much your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. What a tough word to hear. And I think for us, we'd always need to be cognizant of the fact, is my life continuing to draw me closer to looking more and more like Jesus, resembling more and more the Lord Jesus? Or am I being pulled some other way to say, well, what's really important is that you resemble this person or that person, or you reflect this or you reflect that, or do I wanna look more like Jesus? If we're truly following Jesus, we should continue to resemble his character and behavior more and more. Number four, tragically, we tend to see other people's sin more clearly than our own. Tragically, we tend to see other people's sin more clearly than our own. This is a well-known passage to us. Any of us familiar with the Bible, this might be the most well-known thing we've seen yet. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out that speck that's in your eye when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? I don't know if any of you have homes that are old enough to have been built with true two by fours. You know, back when they were actually two by four instead of one and a half by three and a half or whatever they are now. I, uh, we've been doing some work in our basement at our house. We were, our home was built after the point where they were, you know, they, they were no longer real two by fours, but some of that wood, I don't know if it's just the age or just the quality of the wood is so different. You pick up a two by four at Home Depot now versus carrying one out of your house and it's, you know, it's like carrying a tree versus a branch. I mean, it was just solid wood back then. And some of you have, uh, have maybe seen, you know, some of those old ones. The language that's used here for a plank or a log, obviously in Jesus' day there weren't two by fours, and so this is an even bigger piece of wood. Probably something like a telephone pole is a little bit better of something to imagine. You know, how ludicrous to think of someone who has a telephone pole hanging out of their eye and saying, it looks like you got a speck of sawdust over here in your eye. Let me see what I can clear out. One thing I've learned as a parent is we, we've we got four kids. I think I probably share way too much, but we, we've learned a lot. If we'd only had one kid, I'd have already written about six books on parenting, and I'd have said, I don't know what y'all think is so hard about this. We got it figured out. Just re- the more kids we had, the more it humbled me, and I realized I didn't know anything about parenting. <laughs> I know less every day. But we, we have this, you know, as parents, a lot of you have been in parents in this room, you sort of have this 
are they hearing anything I'm saying? Do they understand what I've told them? Maybe I just haven't educated them enough on the, on the process, on the rules, whatever it might be. I've learned this one thing as a parent. I found out my kids know the rules crystal clear as it applies to their brothers and sisters. For whatever we thought they may have missed themselves, they may not have understood, they may not have fully grasped onto. No, they've grasped onto every piece of it. And they will pick out every single sin they see committed by somebody else in that household. But it's a different story when it comes to them. And I'd love to say they're the only ones who deal with that, but can I tell you something? We're not too far from that either. It's always a lot quicker process for us to pick out what we think is wrong somewhere else other than ourselves. We desire grace for ourselves and we often lean on truth as it comes to somebody else or what we think is truth. And so Jesus warns against that to say, look, your primary focus should be your own following of Jesus. Your primary focus should be the things that are going on in your own heart and life. Don't be absent of having iron sharpen iron and don't be absent of speaking a tender, gracious word to someone who needs it, but do so carefully, do so lovingly, earnestly, tenderly, and be quick to realize the plank that's in your own eye. Tragically, we tend to see other people's sin more clearly than our own. Charles Spurgeon, well-known, great, often called the prince of preachers in Baptist life, he said this in his book, Feathers for Arrows, Pedley, who was a well-known natural simpleton, was wont to say, God help the fool. None are more ready to pity the folly of others than those who have a small share of wit themselves. There's no love among Christians, cries the man who's destitute of true charity. Zeal has vanished, exclaims the idle talker. Oh, for more consistency, groans out the hypocrite. We want more vital godliness, protests the false pretender. As in the old legend, the wolf preached against sheep stealing. And so very many hunt down those sins and others which they gladly shelter in themselves. Our focus needs to be, Lord, how should I see what you're doing and what you're calling me to? Do you remember Psalm 139? That great psalm that for, for so many ways, whether it's sanctity of life or so many other topics, we see this great uh, psalm of David about if I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the morning dawn, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, uh, you're there. And, and again and again, we see this great, but then it takes a tough turn. If you've read the Psalm all the way through, we then get to this phrase that I think most of us, if we're gonna frame Psalm 139, we're a little nervous about putting that up, you know, on the, on the, on the post and, and to say, oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. We say, wow. You know, you know all those Psalms used to be sung in a congregation, what would it be like if the third verse of a hymn was, oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. And the psalm goes on on that theme. And I think there must have been some point that David put the, the pencil down or the quill down and he came back after a little bit of a pause. And you come to those great last verses after David's focused on all oh, that you would slay the wicked, that you would get rid of this person and that person, that you would take care of all this injustice in the world. And then how does he end it? Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. See that there be no unwholesome way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. 
We need our eyes turned to our own need for forgiveness. Because no matter how hard we try, we can't get somebody else right with the Lord. But our call has been uh, for us to be made right with Him and to have the self-awareness and the in-tuneness with the Holy Spirit to look that way. We better end there for tonight for time's sake. Uh, let me go ahead and give you the blanks. That way, for those of you who that'll bother, you don't have to worry about that later. <laughs> Number five is this. In the long run, our fruit is shown. In the, long one, in the long run, our fruit is shown. Jesus goes on to talk about that. Every good tree bears good fruit, and those trees which are, which are bad will bear bad fruit. Uh, the picture that's on your, your handout tonight shows this. These aren't two different types of, fri- of, of fruit. This is good figs and not so good figs. This is the $2 figs, and these are the 25-cent figs, if you want them. Some that aren't fit for consumption and others that are. And time is what reveals what will come out. And uh, Psalm 1 that talks about the fact that, that those who dwell in the, the, the heart, the law of the Lord will be like a tree planted by streams of water, bringing forth its fruit in season. That in time, out of the abundance of our heart, fruit will show whether we're walking with Jesus or not. And so this way in which patient looking to the Lord and patient following after him will show itself uh, to be real. And lastly, number six, Jesus is the only sure foundation. Jesus is the only sure foundation. For the, uh, we'll, we'll begin with this next week, but for the wise and foolish builders in that house that was built on the rock versus the one uh, that, were on, that was on the sand. Um, so we'll end with that truth tonight. Jesus is the only sure foundation. Can we pray together? Father, we thank you for the fact that in Christ, we have been forgiven of more than we can ever understand or imagine. That you have shown great mercy. And in being fully justified in judging and condemning us without trial, without Savior, that you in your mercy gave your only Son because of your love for us. So Father, may that move us to mercy, to giving. May it move us away from judgment and condemnation. Lord, we want to be a place and a people where prodigals come home. So Father, in our hearts and in our lives, would you help us? Father, would you give us the heart of the Lord Jesus? And as we follow him, may we look more and more like he does. Lord, we thank you for a chance to see your word, to hear the words of Jesus, those earnest, tender words. And we commit all this to you in the name of Jesus, your son. Amen.